On Friday, July 21st, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and the California Citizens Redistricting Commission, the winner of the 2017 Roy and Lila Ash Innovations Award for Public Engagement in Government, hosted a special lunch conversation on Capitol Hill about redistricting reform. The event included a panel discussion moderated by Archon Fung, Harvard Kennedy School Academic Dean, that featured members of the commission and redistricting experts. Former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger was in attendance and also gave remarks about redistricting reform. Uh, thank you for being here. Because they like the way they got elected. 
And anything that changes that might mean they might not go elected again. This may come as a surprise to anybody who's just walked in the room today. But most of the people in the hallways already know that. So that's why it's very hard to change election procedures. And that's why he is a hero for all of us. And you are a hero uh, for us. Because what you've done in California is you have laid out a process of how you can get citizens engaged and citizens involved and how you can make people believe that government works for them. Um, my father often said that government is the one entity in which we citizens make our most solemn, common decisions. And we can make them if we believe it works. And also we can make them if we elect people who want to work together. And we've seen over the last few weeks that when we don't elect people who want to work together, government doesn't work. Have you seen that? <laughs> you can laugh, or you can cry, or you can be sad. Because as the oldest democracy in the world, it is unfortunate that we aren't able to get jobs done. And we want to get things done for people, for the people that we have uh, come to represent. And what you've seen in California through the um, efforts in 2010 and then later is you had a whole process in which all the citizens could apply to be part of the process, in which you listened to what they needed, you heard what the communities desired, you got them to participate, people who had never participated before, and you were able to get them then uh, uh, have real, com really competitive elections in which they said, wow, we can make a difference. And then you have more people running than had ever run before. You had more people elected than had been elected previously, not just the incumbents. And I want to congratulate uh, Arnold, everybody in this room who has played a part, and especially you, Stanley Forbes, as chair of the commission, in getting the job done. And I hope that you take this, what you've done, to other states across the country, and particularly to the Supreme Court, to show what can be done in this country today to make a difference and to show that this nation, founded so many years ago, can actually become effective again. Thank you very much, and congratulations for winning this award. It was a very easy decision. We did it very quickly, and it meant that I made my flight to Philadelphia that evening. <laughs>
We look forward to using your work to carry a telephone example that it can be done in a cooperative, collegial way that avoids the bitter partisanship we see today that each of the cohesiveness of our society. And again, our thanks to the Senator.
Too often, political self-interest wins and American democracy loses in this conflict of interest. Gerrymandering harms American democracy in several ways. First, it's unfair to political parties who are in the minority. It makes them harder to win the next time around. But I'm less concerned about the Republican or Democratic Party, about which party's ox get scored. Far more important is the health of democracy itself and the well-being of society and American citizenship. Second, then, the main motive of gerrymandering, whichever party is in power, is to protect incumbents. But the basic principle of democratic accountability is for citizens to have the power, as they say, to vote the bastards out. Through partisan redistricting, politicians usurp the power of citizens by reducing their power to choose who represents them. In 2016, only eight out of the 387 incumbents running for Congress were defeated. That is an incumbency re-election rate of 98%. It was probably easier to lose a seat in the old Soviet Central Committee than it is for an incumbent to lose his or her seat in Congress. Third, the magic of democracy depends upon competition. Citizens and communities need politicians and parties to compete vigorously with one another in order to develop policies and the best possible ideas about society to serve all Americans. But in the 2016 election, only 17 seats out of 435 races were close, that is, divided, decided by a margin of less than 5%. It's not a very competitive electoral scene out there. The fourth one, which people don't talk about very much, is most important to me. When politicians gerrymander, they deeply disrespect the citizens whom they, respect, whom they represent and work for. Here's how gerrymandering works. If I'm a politician and I get elected in 2016, I look back and see who you voted for. If you voted for the other party, I try to draw the electoral map so that your vote matters less the next time around. I either pack you and people who voted like you into the smallest number of districts that I can, or I crack you and people who voted like you by spreading you thinly in the districts where you don't really have a chance of winning. That's what gerrymandering is. If a politician made a law that gave you only half a vote or three quarters of a vote, you'd be angry. You'd be right to be angry because that would be deeply disrespectful to you as an American citizen. One person, one vote. That's how things are supposed to work in America. But gerrymandering violates that principle by amplifying the voting power of some people and diminishing the voting power of others. It is deeply un-American. But it's far better to light a candle than to curse the darkness, and today's candle is the citizens, California Citizens Redistricting Committee, Commission. It's a highly innovative experiment to make American democracy work by harnessing the integrity and the energy of ordinary citizens to make fair and responsive electoral maps. As you've heard a little bit about already, the Citizens Redistricting Commission is a body of 14 people who are selected from a pool of over 30,000 applicants from all over the state. The law requires five registered Republicans, five registered Democrats, and four members who are not registered with either party. The commission went through an exacting process of both internal deliberation and public hearings where they heard from almost 3,000 Californians. They certified both state legislative and congressional electoral maps in 2011. 
Several studies by the Public Policy Institute of California, the National Journal, and Ballotopedia have concluded that California now has some of the most competitive electoral districts in America. We have a fantastic panel here to help us understand the California Citizens Redistricting, Redistricting Commission and how this innovation can help American democracy in other parts of the country and indeed in America as a whole. First, we have Gene uh, Ray, who is a Democratic member of the California Citizens Redistricting Commission. You guys aren't sitting in order, but Jeannie's kind of sitting <laughs> over there. She's joined by Peter Yao, a Republican member of the commission and former mayor of Claremont, California. Then we have, uh, to my immediate right, Michael Lee, who is the senior counsel at the NYU School of Law's Brennan Center for Justice, and he focuses on redistricting voting rights and elections. And finally, we have the Ash Center's very own Miles Rappaport, who is the senior practice fellow in American democracy. Miles is a past president of Common Cause, and prior to that, he headed the Public Policy Center in New York called Demos. Welcome to our panel. So we discussed a few questions that might help us explore this topic, and uh, the first one goes to Gene. Gene. You're a busy person. What motivated you to serve on the commission given all of the oh sorry, given all of the demands in your life, including your time, the demanding time of being a small business owner? I've forgotten all the lessons I learned on the commission. Um, can't even find my right place as a matter of fact. Uh, I have a long family history of civic engagement uh, going back a few generations growing up in a relatively small uh, community that's part of LA County. Um, my grandmothers, my uncles, my parents were very involved in whether it was the church or the schools or um, civic life. And um, my father even ran for city council in 1958, which was really a, a big step to take um, as a Mexican American in our community. And I do have his newspaper um, coverage. You know, his whole point was to represent a part of town that had no direct representation on, on the city council. Uh, so really, when this opportunity presented itself, there was no way that I could say no to it. It just drew me in. And um, I really wanted to be, have that opportunity to be part of something that was truly historic. Uh, a fundamental aspect of our civic rights. Um, that, was, that was the idealistic side of me, um, thinking about this, but I had no idea what to expect. There was no reality to look at and say, oh, that's what this job is going to be like. And um, I think it was a big surprise to all of us. It did turn out to be a second full-time job. Um, we, particularly from April until when we started public hearings until August when we released the maps, uh, was a really intense time. I think, as uh, Commissioner Yao's wife said, we spent more time with each other than we did with our families, with our spouses. But uh, I had a wonderful support system. My staff all come from immigrant families, my business partner as well. And they would not have let me say no to this, even though at that very last moment, I was actually the first ping pong ball. <clears throat> and uh, at that very last moment when they call you, 
you know, are you still willing to accept a position? Um, you know, you have that last little bit of escape, but nobody would have let me. Um, and my family as well, my husband and daughter, picked up a lot of things for me uh, that I couldn't do. I think uh, <clears throat> that it was an opportunity none of us would have traded anything for. I have no regrets about it. It was exciting. It was exhausting. Uh, it was a lot of fun at times, uh, especially the road trips. Uh, I learned a lot of things about my own state that I had never really looked at, including a lot of the geography. Um, I have flown over the Santa Monica Mountains a million times and honestly never really looked at them. And I remember distinctly flying in to Burbank <clears throat> and looking out the window and thinking, ah, we talked about that. We talked about the impact of everything that's going on there uh, in nature and how the divide between the valley and the coastal area. So a lot of things became very real to me. And uh, I think most of all, for me, it was the opportunity to work with a group of people who were very, are very intelligent, uh, very passionate, and committed to doing, uh, doing this job well, to, to promoting this democratic ideal and uh, willing to sacrifice to get it done. Thank you very much. So uh, people should keep in mind that the 2020 census is around the corner and all over the country shortly after that, there will be another round of redistricting. Uh, this question is for Commissioner Peter Yao. Uh, Peter, for Californians thinking about applying to the commission for the next round, what words of advice would you have to give them, given your experience? Before, before I ask, start getting into the topic, I want you to be aware of the fact that our commission is going to create a white paper and with the topic exactly uh, uh, of this question. So check our website down the line. Uh, you'll get a lot better information than you're getting from me today. Uh, but this is my input. Uh, uh, the first one is, if you really want to do it, go for it. Don't let me talk you into it or out of it. because. Because in my case, this was really what I wanted to do, and I went for it. Um, the, the, the real benefit, and I want to tell you that before I scare you away with the concerns, the real benefit is that by the time you finish, I think uh, Commissioner Ray already talked about it, you're going to know our state backward and forward, and you're going to know it better than most anybody else in the state, including perhaps the governors, because we would have gone to every corner of the state and thousands and thousands of people drove many miles to come and talk to us and they talk, tell us about the most important thing in, 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 their, in, their, in their life in terms of what they hope for, what they want to achieve and so on. It's an opportunity that, that, uh, that, uh, uh, that rarely exists for or anyone else. And you know that the output that you, the map that we draw, the output that we, that we came up with is extremely important. It, uh, uh, it's, it could even in the long term, which is what we're hoping for, a change agent to, to, to make our democracy work a little better and work a little better for a long, long time. Uh, the lastly is you, uh, 
you'll be working with probably one of the most wonderful team that can possibly be formed. As, as was mentioned, uh, we were lucky enough to be selected, but the applicant pool consisting of probably the most uh, um, <coughs> capable and interested people in the, uh, in the state. Now I'll touch upon four things uh, uh, that, that, that you may want to think about. The first one is really a question. Uh, the second one is the application itself. And the third is about teamwork. And lastly is how much time and how much sacrifice you're going to have to make. The first question, the first is a question. Before you even think about it, you really think and have to answer for yourself as to why do you want to be a commission. If it's a snap judgment, oh, that, that may be fun. If it's a short answer, it's not going to be good enough. And if you just copy the words from, from uh, uh, somebody else, it's not going to be you and, and the, 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 the graders or the, the, the people that select us. They'll, they'll see right through it. So, it, uh, so you've got to spend a lot of time making sure that that's the right answer. Next is the application itself. There's roughly a six-month period between the, the opening application and the time that you have to submit it. And it's going to be probably the most important application that you'll ever fill out in your lifetime if you're, if you're sorting out to be commission, one of the commission seat. Um, the people that, that eventually will pick you don't know anything about you. They're going to be looking at, in our case, 30,000 applications of people that are probably more qualified than than, than some of us who get who got picked in the in the in the process, and it's through a series of essays in our case seven that you have to tell your whole story, what your ambitions are, what you like, uh, uh, as well as some of the specific topics that are that are required by the question, like can you handle numbers and on and on. But in that in that short application, you really have to get the the person that read your application to get to know you, to really understand your character, why you want to do it, because that's the only thing that will distinguish you from, from, uh, from the rest of the applicants. They'll, they'll, they'll feel after studying your application that you have the character, you can do the job, and you really want it, and you really want it more than anybody else, and that's really the, uh, the, the, the importance of the application. Team, um, the teamwork, you're going to be working with a very large group of people, very unlike you in many cases, both in age, in income, in occupation, from, from the northern part of the state to the southern part of the state. It seems like the people that pick the application try to start a fight within the commission. Republicans versus the Democrat, on and on. And then on top of it, they imposed a requirement on you that you have to work within the state bureaucracy. None of us have ever spent a day in that, in that experience. And then on top of it, we had eight months, eight and a half months, to do the job. The job of uh, joining a hundred and some districts without having any experience in doing so. So, working together with, uh, with, with your partners uh, in crime, in this case, is really the only way to get it done, and I hope I have a chance to operate on that a little further. But lastly, is the time and the economic uh, commitment. 
At the beginning of the process, we were told that it would be about a, 20, a quarter equivalent of a full-time job. So for most of us, 10 hours a week, we can, we, we, we can squeeze that in. <laughs> Nowhere close. <laughs> Nowhere close. I think, I think Commissioner Ray already, already uh, identified some of that. But in reality, it, you're going to have to put in whatever it takes. That's really the, 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 the short answer. Now, what does that mean? That means you have to give this task the highest priority for that period of time. What's the, what does the highest priority mean? It's number one. Everything else is secondary. Your family, perhaps, is secondary. <laughs> your uh, job is secondary. Your, 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 your commitment to, 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 to the family uh, uh, activities, that's way down the line. Your daughter's wedding may have to be postponed. <laughs> I mean, that really is, is, is what they're, they're asking of you. The, uh, lastly, is the, your economic impact on, on a potential, on a commission that's, that's been selected. It's going to be significant. Uh, once you start this process, as I said, you have to basically put your job and everything else as a secondary, secondary issue. You pretty much have to stop doing what you have done as, uh, as, a, as a living. If you own a small business, you're going to have to count on somebody else to pick it up without ever alerting them to, to, to do so. Uh, if you have a consulting business, all of a sudden you can't take care of your clients, your, your customers. Guess what? In that period that you're gone, they're going to find solutions that they may never come back to you. In, in, in one case, uh, one of the mani management consultant commissioner uh, not only lost income during significant income during this period of time, but it took about a year and a half to two years before she can build that business back up to what she had when she joined the commission. These are the, uh, these are the, uh, the things that you have to think about. Um, it really did happen to, 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 to all of us in, in, in one way or another. And, uh, but the, probably the most important summary is just like when you buy a car, they ask you, would you recommend it to a friend? And you ask, our commission as to whether we would do it again knowing what we know, I think it will be a resounding yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Michael is a, a close student, a scholar of redistricting processes all across the United States. Uh, California is not the only state, of course, that's tried to reform its redistricting procedures. We have lots of other examples like Arizona, New Jersey, Washington, and others. But California, they took a different model. Can you talk a little bit about how California is different from or similar to other procedures? And in your mind, what are the advantages and disadvantages? Sure. So uh, it's absolutely correct. Uh, about half, the, well, uh, about a dozen or so states use some form of redistricting commission, either for their legislature or for their congressional seats or both. Uh, but not all commissions are created equal. 
Um, some are much better than others, and you know we, we see distinct trends. Uh, some of the earlier commissions were adopted in the 1970s, some were adopted in the 1980s, and we, we see an evolution. Um, and the California Commission is really innovative in a number of respects. Um, one is its size. It's a 14-member commission. Um, the earlier commissions all tended to be four members, five members, um, and, and uh, you know, not only does having only four or five members make it hard to reflect the diversity of a, a state, um, you know, even a, relative, a much smaller state than California, but it also makes it uh, more su sus subject to gaming or to a rogue actor. So you know, if you have only four or five commissioners, a bad commissioner, somebody who goes um, rogue, um, is going to have much more impact than if you have 14 members. Uh, but 14 members also allows for greater uh, diversity, not only uh, geographic diversity, but ethnic diversity, um, uh, class diversity. Um, and so that's one of the big innovations. And since the, the California Commission, uh, most proposals for commissions have had anywhere from 11 to 15 members, uh, even for something like the city of Austin, which has a 14-member commission, uh, to, to do the redistricting there. Um, the other thing that was really innovative about California, well, the California Commission also was innovative in the sense that it's the first commission to expressly include independents. So most commissions were designed to, to represent Democrats and Republicans, but as we know, a lot of people now identify as independents or support uh, smaller parties, and they never had a voice in the process. And so the California Commission gave those folks a voice, and most proposals, again, since California have, have adopted that. Uh, the selection process for California also is like really unique, and I know all of the, the panelists here and the members of the commission had to go through that. Um, it really was designed to be much more independent. So in Arizona, um, legislative leaders get a list of people who are screened, and they get to pick who they want off the list, which is great in one sense, people are screened, you do have to sort of pass muster. But if, it's, it's very easy in a state like Arizona, if you wanted to, to put somebody up who then you know is going to get on the list and lo and behold, you pick them and they're going to do what you want. California had a much more randomized selection process and a much more rigorous screening process. It may have been a little overly rigorous. I think you guys had to do a 90-minute interview before three auditors and um, it was all broadcast on TV. and so. Um, you had to write five essays. I mean, it was like applying to grad school. It might be easier to get in the Kennedy School than to get in the California Commission. Um, and so, but that that produced a, a really rigorous uh, a screen list. And then legislative leaders could strike people off of the list, you know, much in the way that you could strike somebody off of a jury jury pool. Um, but they couldn't actually dictate who would be picked. Instead, that was completely random. Um, for the first eight, and then the eight picked the remaining six to balance out. Because if you, you know, if you do it randomly, you might end up with nobody from Los Angeles or you know, no African Americans. And so you do, the, you know, the, the system was designed to do that. And most commission proposals since then have something uh, similar to California. Um, and the last great innovation I think is the voting rules. So in most earlier commissions, it was simple majority, um, and in states like New Jersey, it's uh, what, what you have is an equal number of Democrats and an equal number of Republicans. And they pick a tiebreaker, and the tiebreaker decides, which gives the tiebreaker a disproportionate uh, voice. So people spend all their time hurrying for the vote of the tiebreaker. Uh, California, to approve a map, you have to have approval not only of the majority of the commission, but a majority of each of the three buckets, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. 
And that makes it impossible for uh, Republicans and independents to get together and screw Democrats or any other combination, right? And so that is a great innovation. It actually encourages and fosters negotiation among the commission. Um, and uh, you know that also has been something that has been widely followed and, and widely admired about the California commission. And so all of those uh, are, are some really thoughtful features of, of this commission, um, which um, has really become the gold standard um, from uh, for other states. Uh, in some states, when I go to the, the states, people are, are saying, "Well, California, the people are just much, you know, they're they're much more pure and stuff like that." Our state is so much dirtier and stuff like that. And it's like, well, I mean, you know, but having talked to people in California, I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, but um, but you know, it, it really has become um, the gold standard. reform these days as a kind of more democratic issue, not as a Republican issue. Is there motivation or political strategies for getting places that are dominated by Republican legislatures to move redistricting reform forward? Do you see it as a Democratic or Republican issue? Uh, no, I don't see it as necessarily a partisan issue, as you said before. But I want to actually start by telling a little story. Uh, before I was at uh, Demos and Common Cause, I was a member of the Connecticut legislature and then Secretary of the State of Connecticut. And in 1991, when I was serving the legislature, it was the year after the 1990 census, and so the state was going through redistricting. I got called off the floor at one point and, went and asked to go to the Speaker's office. When I got to the Speaker's office, there was a map of my district. And next to the map were three different neighborhoods. And the Speaker said, We've got to add people to your district. This neighborhood is a Democratic neighborhood. This, this is another Democratic neighborhood. This is a Republican neighborhood. Now, you have seniority, so you can pick whichever neighborhood you want to add to your district. But we'd really like you to do us a favor, which is you're going to win re-election anyway. You're a pretty strong candidate. And the Democratic representative next to you is weaker. So why don't you take the Republican district, and we can put the other districts there. So I did. I, I was a good soldier, and I said, okay, I do it. But then I walked down, and I thought, you know that flip comment that people make about redistricting, which is it's time for, instead of people represent, picking their, instead of voters picking their representatives, the representatives are picking their voters. It was precisely that, 100%. And I thought, I left the room shaking my head saying, this is not what democracy is supposed to be about. Anyway, that said, uh, so that was actually in what some people will call the good old days of redistricting, which was bipartisan incumbent protection. And at that point, the Democratic and the Republican legislative leaders would get together and they would make sure that all the incumbents were protected and then in the other districts people could fight it out. That has sort of given way, pr principally, in most places, to what I would call partisan domination redistricting, where one party seeks to really, really gain irrevocable um, flood-protected uh, 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 insurance from, uh, from the other side. And under that circumstance, what's the case to be made? Well, I guess I would make a three-part case to Republicans or Democrats or partisans of either, of either side. One is, um, if you look at the California example, there really has to be, at some level in your being, uh, a sense that voters ought to count, that the process ought to be one that has people involved in it. 
It's not simply a matter of partisan exercise. So I think there is got to be some appeal to the basic functioning of democracy and let's do it better. Uh, secondly, I think if you really ask most legislators these days, state legislators or congressmen, do you really think it's, this is how we want it to be? I think the answer is no. And I think one of the issues, the statistic you cited, Archon, about 387 people winning re-election, um, one of the reasons there is such polarization and such gridlock and such an in inability to compromise is that people don't have competitive districts. And so I think everybody could say, you could make a case that if you want to pull back from this break that we're on, uh, let's do it differently. And then the third point I would make is, um, I'll give Michael uh, credit for this, which is the redistricting, one of the ways that you do the partisan domination redistricting is you spread your votes out so that you have a small but competent majority in more districts and you let the other party have big majorities in fewer number of districts. And it's the equivalent of preparing for a 75 year flood. You know, in most situations, uh, the, that, will, that, that dike will hold. But what if there's a 500 year flood? What if something is happening in the nation? Let's, you can probably think of some examples, which make the, 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 per, per, the potential outcome unlike anyone, anyone before, like a 500 year flood. At that point, the 53, 54% districts you've drawn are not gonna hold. Um, so the question that, and I know the Common Cause is raising this in North Carolina and some other states, the question to uh, uh, the majority party and then North Carolina's Republicans is, do you really want to bet the farm on the fact that after the 2020 elections, four years now of, of changing the electorate, um, who knows what the political conditions would be, do you really want to bet the farm that you're going to be in power for the next redistricting? And if you don't, how about doing a bipartisan compromise to have fair redistricting, let everybody compete on an even playing field? I think that's a sellable argument, and hopefully it'll be made in some states between now and 2020. Thank you very much. I want to go back to Peter and Jean to explore a little bit the texture of the conversations and discussions and some of the challenges that you guys faced in doing your work on the commission. We've heard a lot about partisan tensions as maybe the axis that around which redistricting uh, battles and disagreements are fought. And I want to explore with you guys whether how much part it was about partisanship or whether there were other challenges and what those challenges were that rose to the level of difficult conversations and difficult disagreements among the commission. And uh, maybe I'll first I'll give that to Peter and then Gene. Well, I'm afraid that the question is going to be a lot more interesting than the answer. <laughs> let, me, let me just paint a picture of the commission. I started doing that in my last comment. It, one was, one's motivation was to make sure the redistricting commission fails. They would likely to have picked a commission just like what we had because the, they want to create a lot of internal friction, a lot of uh, 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 fighting within and unable to make decisions and so on. But the things that, it, that everybody was looking for, logjam, uh, infighting, never happened. Why did it not happen? It's not because we were good in avoiding 
these conflicts. It's simply that the impact of our maps has significant political impacts, but the process of doing the redistricting is totally not political. As was mentioned, we took all the, all the political factors out of the equation. We were not allowed to look at the voting, voters' registration so we can't tell which districts, we, or which areas Republican, which areas Democrat. We, we were not allowed to, to, to see what the current incumbent lives. We were basically required to focus on a single thing. It's called a community of interest. What does that mean? That means we go around asking people to the maximum extent possible, what is it that you want? What is it that, that you wish for? What, what are things that are important to you? And we, in general, take that information and try to make that happen. We try to group these like-minded people into a district so that they can elect a representative of their choice to, 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 to enhance their probability of getting what they want. That, in essence, is the process of the California redistricting. And if you think that has anything political, we didn't experience it. In fact, when I first joined the commission, uh, one person remaining, uh, who shall remain uh, unnamed, came up to me and saying, you have the responsibility of making sure that the, that, that the Republican interests are protected. I heard it, didn't know what it meant at that time. I'll comment on that a little later. The strange team that we started out with, in fact, worked to our advantage. The vast diversity, the vast knowledge from all the fields, uh, it, it really helped us to, 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 to gel together uh, quickly and also make exceptional decisions. Example, one of our first jobs is we were given three and a half million dollars. That was the budget. They put us in a room, introduced us to each other, and say, go forward and do your job. None of us knew how to buy a pencil with that three and a half million dollars. Because you just, we just don't, we just can't go out and spend the money. We have to get, get the procurement uh, procedure approved and on and on. We know that in, in starting the organization, we have to hire a director. Mr. Claypool sitting over here that was our uh, director. But to hire somebody at that senior level is a six-month process, and we had eight months, eight and a half months to do our work. So we probably broke every rule in the book in terms of making that happen. We stood up the organization with not only the, the managers, but all the full staff in about a month and a half. By that time, we were ecstatic that we got as far as we did. We did what a lot of people think it was an impossible test. We not only didn't fail, we made pretty good progress. And having done that, the next task we had was to go out to the community and collect information on what I talked about previously as the community of interest. Also, at, at that same time, the external inputs, the people look at us as being political people, and they gave us a lot of polit political data. But we have done that before. We ignore all the, uh, all the political parameters, filter out all those things, and basically focus on the community of interest input. 
and, and, and there that's, we, we basically, once we have the input, we buckle down and, 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 and try to do our job. Now, the, around the midway, one of the things we, uh, we were required to do was to release a draft map, okay? And we thought we had done a pretty good job when we released the draft map. The feedbacks were not very good. The, uh, that's, that's an understatement, by the way. <laughs> Uh, we acknowledge it. A couple commissioners took the lead. The rest of us basically buckled down. Our focus was much tighter, and we basically uh, 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 take our lessons learned and proceed with the second half of our redistricting work. And from that point on, it was really easy. <laughs> Comparing to the to the first half, we buckled down and we sailed in the port without without a lot of fanfare. So again, I hate to disappoint you that we didn't have any of these infighting or, or firework or anything that that people had expected of us. Our work was really non-political, and and we knew what we had to do. We had a great team, and 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 we got it done. Uh, as, so, and obviously, one of the, 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 the best thing we had was having a good team. But along the way, we had a lot of people that sacrificed. An example is, we, we, we start our map join meeting at around 8 o'clock in the morning, and it goes for the full day. One of our young commissioner mother woke up in the morning, left four kids at home asleep, drove 100 miles, to show up at our meeting and work the whole day. At the end of the day, while the rest of us felt sorry for ourselves for, for, for <laughs> sitting in one place for that extended period of time, we checked in the hotel room. She had to drive home, tuck the bed, tuck her four kids in, or four boys in, all our age, all our below seven years of age. And the next morning, eight o'clock, she's there again. So it's that kind of motivation. That really kept us going, and uh, and uh, and and with with uh, with example like that right before us, we had to do a good job, and we had to get things done, and that in essence was the, the, how we tackled the team, or how we worked together as a team, and that really was the process we went through and got the map done. So, no no violence. Thank you very much. Oh, I forgot to mention. At the end of the commission, the, 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 the advice that I was told, you got to take care of the Republican Party. I still don't know what that means. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, Gene, I think, had some, some reactions about the, the comedy and the lack of conflict. Can you think of Peter is always, Peter is always the, nice, the nice guy. Um, I couldn't characterize it as conflict, but I think you know, put 14 people into a room that you've never met before, and um, you're all from different backgrounds, and, you know, think of any way, any aspect of yourself that's meaningful to you, and the person next to you is your polar opposite. So, you know, it did take time, and it wasn't entirely without a little bit of, hey, wait a minute, conversation, um, but it was always on a... It, not, a, I'm not on a personal level and, and not 
really antagonistic, but just, you know, that questioning that goes on getting to know each other. And I think a good example of, of maybe the first time we sort of broke through that kind of conversation was uh, one of our commissioners, um, I, what's the word I want to say, she resigned very, um, very early in the process. And so we hardly knew each other. Now all of a sudden we're given a list of the remaining candidates and we need to pick a replacement. And we had already gone through the process with the, the six of you know, filling in all the gaps. And now we had to pick this one person. Um, so we were down to you know, a, a relatively small pool of people. And the, the conversation and the vote went from you know, one end of it to the other. We had you know, eight people eight to four or whatever it was, and now all of a sudden it's, oh, maybe six to four, and now we're back to, you know, switching around completely the other way. And so in the end, we selected Commissioner Anchetta, um, and a wonderful addition to the commission. But, you know, it was that process of kind of learning to listen to each other. It was, um, I think we all respected what each other commissioner brought to the table and valued, learned to value each other's opinions. So, you know, in the end, I, I think, um, you know, some of us became closer friends than others, but I know that we all walked out. Uh, we spent a lot of evenings together, too. You know, we had, we traveled together, we had dinner together. Um, that really helped us to build, I think, that kind of bond to overcome what would otherwise, you know, otherwise could have been uh, conflict. Thank you very much. So I want to follow up by asking uh, Michael a question about, again, comparing commissions. So when you think of a redistricting commission and exercise that's not composed of elected legislators, you think, well, it's got to be some other political kind of expert. Maybe it's retired judges. Maybe it's mathematicians who can you know, crank the models. Maybe it's political scientists. But you think of some kind of political professional drawing these maps. The Citizens' Assembly went the opposite way. It wasn't about political professionals in that regard. And I think for that reason, a skeptic kind of saying, well, these people aren't going to have a lot of expertise, maybe that provided some comfort to the commission's opponents by saying, oh, they're going to draw bad maps, or they're not going to be able to do it for lack of competence. They are, the maps that they draw will get thrown out in court. Maybe they'll just gridlock and not be able to agree, whatever it is. So a couple of questions. One is, were you surprised that it kind of worked, given what many people expected of it, number one? And then number two, what do you think about this difference between staffing, or not staffing, but having a, a commission or a process populated by political experts on one hand, who let's say they're nonpartisan, but political experts, versus citizens who are just kind of trying to figure it out and do a good job? So there, there's no question that the expectation widely in the political class was that the California Commission would fail, right? Um, you know, other states had adopted commissions, but you know they were smaller states, and in many cases not very demographically complicated, right? So Iowa is one of the whitest states in the country. It, its counties are fairly evenly populated. 
Um, you know, it doesn't, you don't have the whole mix of voting rights issues. You know, Los Angeles County is 10.3 million people. It's got, you know, like a huge Latino population. And, it's, and you know, you've got different Latino subgroups. You've got like seven different Asian groups. And um, it, it just sort of, it's, it's really complicated. And, and the, the white view was that the, the commission not being experts uh, or, you know, not being politically not being political people uh, would would inevitably fail or draw bad maps and they get thrown out and that the legislature then would be back to draw maps um, and that that's how it would work out. I mean, it turns out that it, it, it wasn't that way and it turns out that, you know, when you put everyday people in this role that they actually sort of take it really seriously. And the one thing that many people have commented on, on about the California Commission is that the commissioners very much were like a jury, right? You know, these are people who went in and didn't know anything about this beforehand, but they worked really hard and diligently and tried to follow the rules um, as much as possible you know, to get to a result. Um, and many people have said in other places, like when you have politically connected people who are appointed, for example, to the New Jersey Commission, they, they come in with a preconceived idea of where they want to go. And the California Commission really didn't sort of, they may have had some ideas about what, where they wanted to go, but they were very open to listening to the community testimony and letting that sort of shape many of the decisions. Um, and they were they were oftentimes hard decisions. I mean, again, turning to Los Angeles County, I mean, it's a enormous, you know, because of the Latino growth and, and you know, the, the, Af the relatively stable African-American population, there were some tough choices they had to make. Um, but they uh, listened and, you know, some people would disagree with where they ended up, but no one it seems to really doubt that they sort of took it seriously and made a good faith effort. Um, and it's, you know, it's sort of, the, the commission is sort of, I say it's like a jury, right? And, and you know, a, a jury that sort of has to travel around the state together and, and um, you know, spend a lot of time. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it should give people a lot of confidence that everyday people can do this. And that's something that when I go around and talk to legislatures and people who are considering reform, um, you know, a lot of lawmakers in particular are skeptical, like everybody's partisan, like, they'll, they'll, you know, everybody sort of has an end goal and everything like that. And California shows like, no, if you put the right people, if you screen them and you sort of like, um, you know, look for people who are going to be consensus oriented and, and sort of good team players, you actually can put together uh, something that works. Thank you very much. So, uh, Miles, last question before we open it up for some Q&A is about the process by which, oh, sorry, the, is about the process, process by which the citizens, California Citizens Redistricting Commission was created. It was created, of course, through a ballot initiative, and California famously, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes the bad results, has a robust process of direct democracy has for a very long time. A lot of states don't have that. Do you think that there's a path to uh, reform, to creating something like a Citizens Redistricting Com Commission in places that don't have initiative and referendum? Well, I think an, an important point to make is, not, is that it is not either California or nothing to give up. Let it, let it be the way it, it has been. Um, there are other states, Michigan and Ohio are two that come to mind where there are ballot initiatives and there may well be uh, reform ballot initiatives that are, on, that are on and that have a chance of making real changes. But even in states where there, is, there aren't uh, ballot initiatives, you know, you, there's a gradation of different kinds of, different levels of reform that I think you can make. I was just looking at, actually I was looking at Common Causes pieces, but there are eight other states where some version of a non of nonpartisanship or bipartisanship is required by law. 
You know, it's not nearly as limited as citizen part civic participation as in California, but it's something. And Iowa, that Michael just referred to, it's a nonpartisan staff does and the legislature can, you know, adopt it or not adopt it, but if they don't adopt it, it goes to the court. So there are different ways of doing it um, uh, that I think are possible, and I think there may be very well legislative solutions that will adopt some pieces of it that make it better. But I think I'd make an even a different point, which is even if there is no change in the formal process, that doesn't mean that the situation is hopeless. Um, I think there's a real possibility that an, a, a, an aroused or an engaged citizenry, even when the legislative leaders are drawing it in the old-fashioned way, can have real impact on it. There are going to be hearings. There are going to be um, you know, opportunities for pressure. There is going to be the ability to map map drawing. And of course, if you look at think about it technologically, where we are now versus where we, I was in 1991, and even where we were in 2010, is miles, miles ahead. I mean, we're going to have middle school social studies projects. They're going to be to draw the districts for your state and submit them to the to somewhere. I'm telling you, and be, they'll be better. Anyway, but I think so. I think that there is the civic engagement can make itself felt through any process. So I guess what I would say is, where there's no where there's validation of opportunity, let's try to take it. Um, where there isn't, let's try to make sure that we can get at least some elements of reform in it. And even in the absence of that, uh, citizens should mobilize, draw maps, think about communities of interest as citizens, and be involved in the process. And I think it will be different and better than it was in 2010, no matter what happens. Thank you very much. So uh, we have a, a, lot, a lot of uh, material, a lot of content, a lot to think about on the table. So far, and so we have some time for some discussion in the larger room. So if people have questions or comments, please uh, either raise your hand. Do, should we people go to the microphone? Or if you could, go, uh, go to the microphone so other folks can hear you. And they will be able to chime in. Yeah, they're free of listening to it. It's on, you just have to Okay, I'm talking right next to it. Yes. So I'm yep. Helen with the League of Women Voters. And you, there's been a lot of talk about competitiveness today. And when we wrote the criteria for the California Redistricting Commission, we carefully left out competitiveness. And so I'm, I'm going to ask the commissioners to talk about that a little bit. But also, from the academic point of view, did the competitiveness fall out of the fact that we did not have it there, we had the other criteria, or, or you know, what, what, I mean, we really did, we were conscious about that, so I want to kind of reaction to that. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Why, why omit competitiveness as a criteria? Um, because we felt that communities of interest were far more important. Yes, right. So that was our, that, and, and that, was, that was the point at which the decision making needed to happen. And we were really careful that competitive communities of interest was at the point of was, and that and it became a crucial issue. Great. So on competitiveness. Well, that that question did come to us about either um, creating competitive districts or, you know, kind of being a little more um, pointed about what we were trying to accomplish. But you know, we were subject to very strict criteria, and I think that the resulting competitiveness does reflect the information that we received from the public engagement. Um, coming, coming to the commission and expressing all of the things that were important to people uh, in, in drawing districts, 
just naturally, it seemed to me, then created that opportunity for electing different people or electing someone more in line or in tune with particular communities. Because we, people came and talked to us about the economy, the, the industries in their area, water issues, uh, education, recreational issues, um, transporta transportation, uh, you know, so many different things that were important to them that apparently nobody was listening to. And that's why they came to talk to us about it. And I, I think the result was just a natural one. So I could say something about uh, competition as well. Uh, so you know, many times people want to want competitiveness, and there certainly is a societal value from having competition. Um, you know, but in many cases, in many places, you have to sort of gerrymander, sort of create competition. So I, I live, for example, in Brooklyn, New York, in a state assembly district where Barack Obama got 98% of the vote, and Hillary Clinton did worse. She got 96% of the vote. Uh, out of the out of the remaining 4% in, in 2016, Donald Trump came in third. Um, and so, you know, you're not going to be able to draw a competitive district in central Brooklyn. There just aren't enough Republicans. And the only way you would do it is you would, you know, you'd have to gerrymander me into like Long Island or up, upstate or something like that in order to, to sort of create that kind of district. And, and that's something that we probably don't want to do. So sometimes a lack of competition is a harm in and of itself. And, and, and you know, um, and, but other times uh, it's not. Um, and you know, when you talk about competition as a criteria, and, and that's just oftentimes a debate. Um, you know, it, competition, particularly for communities of color, oftentimes can be code word for let's take the black and brown people and sprinkle them into as many districts as possible to create competition because they're your most reliable Democrats. And so it sometimes can be hard to put together a winning coalition. Um, but as California proved, if you just naturally draw districts to preserve communities of interest, you actually end up significantly increasing competition. Uh, you know, a quarter of California's congressional districts are now competitive, uh, roughly. And that number may go up as, as incumbents retire, because there still is an incumbent advantage. Um, and when incumbents retire, you actually may see more competition. And it turns out that um, you know, that's great. And you have community-based districts where it, it's possible now for a city councilor or a mayor of a city who's well-known in a, 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 a district because the city isn't split up in multiple ways. Um, you know, that person actually has a shot at sort of like, you know, a good leaping point off into to becoming a, a member of Congress or, or a member of the legislature. Um, and that helps advantage women and people of color because, you know, if you have these odd chick districts that, that don't make, mean anything, you have to have a lot of money, you don't can't leverage, you know, being well known. Um, and that is, you know, that, that um, you know, so who does that favor? That favors like white males, right, who have access to the kind of money and things like that, you know, and drawing much more natural community-based districts, uh, you increase competition, but you also sort of change who's running and who's getting elected. So, that. Uh, Peter wanted to jump in just briefly and then because there's a lot. The process that we use in making decisions, um, we were very careful with that. Uh, for example, being fair, okay, and we have our consensus opinion as to what fairness is. But at the end of the day, 
or my definition of true or right and so on as being an engineer. One plus one to me equals two. But with five lawyers in the commission, I have since learned that the truth is whatever the Supreme Court says it is. <laughs> and so, 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 when, if we, de if we deviate from the direction that we have by the proposition, it runs a risk of violating, quote, quote, the, the, the rules. So, so we are uh, purposely being careful, making sure that whatever challenges that, that were, that were uh, against us, we survived on the decision. So we really did not venture off very far from, from, uh, from the proposition, from the definition of what we have to do, how we do it. And that, so comp com competitiveness ne never really entered into the thinking process. Rick Dykema with Congressman Warbacher. Um, it's a fascinating process. I was uh, watching uh, most of uh, your uh, live deliberations as they were happening. Um, but one aspect kind of puzzled me as to why it was set up that way and, and should it be changed, which is you had five Republicans, five Democrats, and four others. And why wasn't it five of us? So, you know, because you, well, you have to get a majority of each group. And if you only have four, that's an even number. So then two of the others can block the entire thing. Whereas two Republicans could not block it, or two Democrats could not block it. Um, shouldn't that be changed? Or is there some kind of rationale why it should be that way? And maybe just to add to that, did it matter? Were you conscious of who the five Republicans, who the five Democrats, who the four others were in the whole thing? Well, first of all, yes, of course, we, you know, you're constantly in a supermajority vote where it's the, the three, three, and three. Um, you, you, you're taking a vote, a roll call vote, yes, by your party affiliation. I think that a, a number of us would think especially in California, because the percentage of not affiliated voters is actually higher than maybe they thought when they first started drafting. I didn't draft the proposition, and I'm, I'm sorry that you know there isn't someone to directly address that. But I think it's a good question about um, what the numbers might be going for, you know, whether there might be an amendment. Who knows? But um, that was something that, that we were very much aware of. Uh, over here. Hi, I'm Aaron Gould Zimmer. I'm a philanthropic and donor advisor. Um, I think there's no question that the commission is the best of all the systems that are out there at this point. My question is whether there are any improvements that you would make. And I have a couple particular questions, although I'd like to hear any others. One is that there were some reports that the system was able to be gamed a little bit, in this case by Democrats, although it could have been either side where supposedly they had essentially set up some people to testify and claim communities of interest. And because you didn't have the budget, number one, and because you weren't able to look at politics, number two, maybe you weren't able to detect some of that. Or at least that was some people who claimed this. And then second, you know, there are these mathem mathematical metrics now for partisan fairness, such as the efficiency gap, 
And would it, would it make any sense to have kind of a safeguard, kind of, okay, the commission goes through its process, great, but let's just make sure that the final maps have an efficiency gap, efficiency gap score less than X percent, or just some safeguard to ensure partisan fairness. So just be curious as to your thoughts. So, uh, Michael and the commissioners know far more about this than I do, but there was a, there's a pretty controversial but very well-read ProPublica article that uh, was a kind of expose on efforts to kind of game the commission, and that's what you're referring to, I think. Uh, let me just say, first of all, with respect to the gaming uh, allegations, which one of our commissioners very ably debunked uh, in a response to ProPublica, uh, one of the good things about our process was the transparency. So we had a constant stream of information coming into us, not simply the people who were appearing and perhaps seemed, you know, had a little bit more of a spotlight, but, you know, the thousands of email messages that were pouring into us as well. Um, we also have, you know, the commissioners, most of us have been involved in uh, civic life in one way or another. So I think we were not as unsophisticated and uh, unaware as some people have suggested. Um, and I, so I think, you know, it was not hard to pick up on the number 300 email that you got that started out, you know, I am from District X, or I am from, you know, City X, and my concern is, and you just finished reading 299 exactly, uh, the same message over and over. Not hard to figure out that somebody is manufacturing a plan here. Um, and the same goes with the testimony. Uh, so, uh, what can I say? You know, yes, it would be, it's possible to game the system. Didn't happen with this commission. So, uh, I can address the, the second question and also um, a little bit on the, on the first. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I do think, you know, in looking at commissions, you know, the question is not, you know, does the commission do perfectly every single time, right? You know, you want something that is going to do good, like 99 out of 100 times, and if, it, you know, if something sort of gets through or some district gets strong a certain way one time, um, you know, that's probably okay. We don't expect 100% effectiveness with any medication or anything like that. We, we just want it to do good most of the time and not bad. Um, and. Uh, on the, and, you know, the, the transparency here, I think, is key. I mean, the, all of the commit, commission's proceedings were broadcast. Many people, particularly from civil society groups, of which there are abundant uh, number in California, watched and, you know, with bad maps, or, or when somebody was trying to game the system, people would email or send in something saying, you know, that really person is a plant or something like that. And so um, the transparency was really uh, key to enabling public, the public to police the system. Um, as to the efficiency gap or some measure, um, you know, a lot of proposals now are starting to include that and sort of say you know, maybe we should um, measure that at the back end. Um, the, the Michigan proposal doesn't embrace a particular formulation. It just says, like, you know, you, you measure using this, uh, accepted measures of, of partisan bias, uh, recognizing that they may evolve. And, um, and so, you know, that's an example of something that seems good um, with the caveat that those measures are good at telling you that you shouldn't wear a parka to the beach, but they don't necessarily tell you within the scope of what is acceptable, which is better, right? So you wouldn't want to write it in a way that says you must try to get zero 
efficiency gap because a plan that has a 2% efficiency gap, which is not statistically significant, might be better because it's keeping towns or communities together or giving minorities a chance to elect. And so, you know, it's, you know it, it could be used effectively, but, it, but you know, an 8 or 9% gap probably is, you know, something that you want to avoid. So it's good for testing, like, if you're outside of the, the range of acceptability, but not necessarily telling you exactly within the range of acceptability where you should land. So. We did experience a lot of uh, situations where we were given information, but we lacked ability to determine whether those were the truth. However, uh, being having a public process where everything is broadcast, we may not get feedback in real time, but we have a lot of feedback from people that wrote to us afterwards saying that wasn't true. Another example would be that at a, one of the public meetings, there, there, were, there were speakers. We didn't require that they give address to us or, or anything like that. But uh, after that person spoke, the, 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 a few of the other attendees pointed out to us that is a staffer to one of the political candidate or political officer Office, officer in that particular district. So uh, I would hope that in the, in the, in the future there would be budget set aside and there would be a, some kind of vetting process so that staffers that can help us do these technical work saying, is that real or is that not real? So that we have some more confident data to work with. But nevertheless, the system that we had really did screen out a lot of the obvious and blatant uh, manipulation of public on us. Thank you. So, yeah, sorry, uh, I'm Andrew. Uh, I'm here for the summer. I'm a student at the University of Chicago. Um, so, another, uh, I think, important point things happening in California recently is criminal justice reform. Um, and I think that that among other issues where it affects the numbers or there might be certain um, laws or things in transition um, that could affect how you come down on certain issues in your district um, could be pretty thorny and have their partisan sides. Um, so I'm wondering how you dealt with those sort of transition and did that come up? Issues of um, who ought to be counted, even if they I'm, aren't legally franchised? I'm, or where yeah, you, I'm guessing you're talking about uh, incarcerated individuals. That's what you're referring to. Um, yeah, the, it, we we were aware. The, it, I mean, certainly aware that there is a transition in thinking about that. I'm, I'm sorry to say, I'm not aware how far along. Uh, we are in this. Um, I wish, are you pointing to Commissioner Anchetta? <laughs> uh, I'm Angela, I'm talking commissioners. Um, we've talked about it at one of our meetings, but we knew, particularly given the time constraints, that we couldn't get uh, that type of data together to look at how we might adjust the numbers. But the legislature did 
I'm staying for the Commission Chair. There was a second reform in California that actually at the same time that I think addresses this issue, and that was the case of the top two uh, primary elections. Because as it, it, if you have a heavily Democratic district or a heavily Republican district, the minority party vote is meaningless because you're right, the election takes place in the primary, and you get the most extreme kind of candidate because only the real hard line votes come out and vote in the primary. But with the top two, even if they're both Democrats or both Republicans, you're going to get one candidate going to be more moderate than the other. And so the other party can support the more moderate candidate. And so you end up with a, a, much, a, a much less polarized uh, election. And that's a, that's a, that's a that's stuff we did. But that is a second reform. That was an important reform in California. Hi, Mike Snow. I'm an attorney from Sacramento. Uh, this is about the idea of community of interest, uh, which we've heard a number of you touch on. Uh, so let me set this up. I think I can speak for most every member of the public, at least at some point in time, when we look at politics and we see a lot of partisan conflict and we're wondering, isn't there anybody who can just work this out? Why can't we just find something that we can talk to about as humans with each other and solve certain problems? Now, what I heard, I heard Gene and I heard Peter, and they talked about going out and meeting people in all corners of the state and identifying the community of interest as what was important in figuring out where we put these lines. And what I heard, what I heard when I was sitting there, and this in every positive way, what I heard was this idea that when you do that, when you identify this community of interest, when you go from there from the public, that something magical happens. And conflict starts to go away because everybody figures out there is one common goal. So if I'm right, and I may not have been right in hearing it, but if I'm right, maybe if I'm not right, what can be done by moving forward, spreading this out beyond California? What can be done to convince others, legislators and public alike, to identify the community of interest and figure out what those issues are to the public, not the issues to the legislators? issues to the public bring Anyone would like to respond? Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is thank you, Ash Center, um, <laughs> because that's exactly what we're hoping to do, is to take our message on the road uh, nationally and uh, share what, what we learned um, maybe even some of what could be improved, but I think just sharing the idea that you could bring 14 ordinary people uh, into this room and, and come up with a fair product in a transparent way. Uh, I, sometimes, you know, when I look at the political world, I think, how hard is it to, you know, I really, you know, not just to continue tooting our own horn, I guess, but I really think, you know, we are, we're a model, why doesn't Congress follow us? You know, why don't they pay attention to how we have um, listened to each other, persuaded each other, you know, respected each other? It, it seems to me like such a simple thing, uh, and I don't understand why, why it doesn't happen, but maybe, you know, this is our opportunity to, to spread that word. Yeah. Uh, Miles, just, just very quickly, um, 
you know, I think one of the, one of the main lessons here, listening, is that it wasn't simply the creation of a nonpartisan commission. It was a lot about the process that you undertook and the listening and the, um, you know, all the transparency, uh, all those things. And I think that is a possible case to be made to whoever is doing the redistricting. You know what I mean? There are lots of forms of deliberative democracy that can be used. Once upon a time, just having a public hearing and letting the public show up was an, an innovation. But it's not, it's not enough anymore. You know, so what kinds of mechanisms and forums and online uh, opportunities can be created so that in one way or another there is the recreation of that sense of genuine input and participation. And I think um, every legislator uh, ought to have their feet held to the fire to create that, even if there is not a major structural reform in the process. Let me share uh, uh, a conversation I had with a good friend. He's a avid reader of The Economist magazine. He reads it cover to cover, and during the process, he made a comment to me saying that economists actually have covered our California redistricting process more so than most of the national weekly magazine has. And he also shared the fact that there's a great deal of European interest in watching this American experiment. And he shared his thought with me, saying that even if, they, if a dictator is willing to put together an independent commission and just give them the problem and have them go off, study the issue, and decide on what to do about it, maybe, maybe come up with the law, and allow that law to, to go into effect without anybody else having the, the ability to modify it. That probably would be a very productive governmental system. You know, you think about it. We rely on our politician to do the discussion and, and, and decide on what they think is right and wrong. But during the same process with a totally independent uh, 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 group of people that are qualified and have the will to do a good job, that could potentially be a very, very uh, powerful form of new government, whether it's a democracy or whether it's a dictator. Hopefully a democracy. <laughs> well, we have one more uh, piece of this afternoon's program. Is, yeah, I'm sorry, we, we have to... Okay, it's about democracy after all. <laughs> my name is Charles Munger, and my role in this process is described as muscle man. But another brilliant muscle man in the state of California, we actually managed to get this reform passed in law straight. I'm here not to ask any questions about this. I'm here to give honors to the commission because the common cause of the human voters came up with a process that we think this will incline to fairness. We think this will incline to public influence. We think this will incline to producing mass and really competitive politics. It all rested in the end of 14 people who had to come up and sacrifice their lives, sacrifice their time, put up with the public hearings, 
any light being shed in this room the rest of the conference because you fourteen. And speaking as somebody who a lot of other people work hard to set this in motion across the fingers that we want. I know we have made a big mistake. <laughs> we hope we get people who really step up. And so all honor to you for today and great to serve this award. And we should feel very, very proud to accomplish the state of California Thank you very much for that remark. See, the room was right, I was wrong. You've got to trust democracy. <laughs> now, it's my great pleasure to welcome the final speaker of this afternoon's event. He has transformed both culture and politics in America. From early in his political career, he's been an advocate of nonpartisan redistricting, favoring a plan in California to empower retired judges to conduct redistricting. That plan was defeated in 2003, but then he came back. In 2008, against the political winds, he courageously championed Prop Proposition 11, which created the California Citizens Redistricting Commission. In this effort, he truly put state and democracy before party and political self-interest. Because under the new electoral districts that the citizens drew, Republicans lost significant ground to the Democrats. Let's hope that other politicians follow this noble example of leadership, putting the health of democracy and the welfare of citizens ahead of any political party. Please welcome Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, thank you very much for this nice introduction. It's exciting the way I wrote it. <laughs> thank you. I want to say thank you right off the to the Ash Center for having us all here and for uh, putting the spotlight on such a very important issue and, uh, and recognizing the great job that our Independent Commission in California is doing. And I want to join them to just also say thank you all for the terrific job that you're doing. I am so proud of each and every one of you for what you've done, and you already can see the results in California. So let's give them again a big, big thank Now, I uh, just want to recognize a few people because I'm a big believer there's no such thing as a self-made man. And uh, this is actually a speech I gave in Houston, the University of Houston, uh, because I'm a big believer that we are never able to do anything ourselves, we always get a lot of help. And the same was also uh, creating this uh, independent commission. There were a lot of people there that really helped us, and I just want to mention Charlie Munger, who just had us uh, give a little arrogant speech here. Uh, why don't you just stand up once again, Charlie? Where are you? Because we've tried many times before 
As a matter of fact, five times, four times it has failed, and the, five, the fifth time we won. As a matter of fact, the press has asked me many times, don't you get the message? Do the people say no? And they say no. I've gotten the message. I only get the message when they say yes. And uh, so eventually they did say yes. And so, but it is because of people like Charlie Manga. Uh, junior who has been there, who has put the money where his mouth was, he's passionate about the subject, he campaigned up and down the state with us, so thank you very much, Charlie, for your great, great contribution. I also want to say thank you to Common Cause, who have been really great, great partners with us, the League of Women Voters, who have been terrific, and uh, joined at every meeting and had great, great input on so in the R in our, uh, NRB, uh, AARP, I should say, uh, they have been a terrific organization uh, and were there right from the beginning and believed in that. Um, so I just want to say thank you to all of them because without them we would not have been able to do that. So let's give them all a big, big hand. I'm very, very happy that uh, Lieutenant Governor Captain Kennedy is sitting here. Uh, the elegant speech in the beginning. Um, thank you for the nice things that you've said about me. I can only say that many, many more things, uh, nice things about you because every time I call you to work together on an issue, you never look at it as a democratic issue, a Republican issue, just look at it as a people's issue. And this is exactly what we need to do. So you've been a terrific leader, and of course, not only in politics, but also, you know, you grew up being a public servant, so it's a bridge where we could have you so thank you very Let's give a big, big several other states that have done something about it, but I think that we without any doubt have developed the best system because we've taken the power away from the lawmakers, from the legislators, and giving it back to the people. That is what we have done. And I tell you, my frustration came because when I became governor, I paid very little attention before that to this whole issue. But when I became governor, the people of California sent me to Sacramento to kick some butt. We're going to bring Democrats and Republicans together. I promised them, I'm going to do that. I said, yeah, I'm married to Democrats, so I'm not going to look at them as the villains or anything like that. And I'm a Republican, so of course, we're going to bring them together. But when I went up to the Sacramento, I found that very quickly. 
this is a fixed system. Now, in the movies, you solve this problem very quickly. You know, you go into the room, you break the door down, and then you see all the guys sitting there mapping out and doing the, the, the distributing lines and all this stuff and fixing the system. And you just go, blow up the room, turn the maps, throw everyone out the window, and the job is done, right? <laughs> well, that's in the movies. <laughs> I had to do it in the real world. I had to finally adjust that I'm not anymore playing the Terminator and the Commando and Predator. <laughs> it's like the those movies they buy the DVDs. But anyway, uh, I was dealing with the real world. And the real world was that I had legislators coming in, Democrats and Republicans, and they said to me, look, we have a difference of opinion. We philosophically believe in this, we philosophically believe in that. And I totally understand that. I didn't want anyone to change their minds or anything like that and to change philosophy. But when the, the legislative leaders come in, and I said to them, for instance, just to give you an example, let's do a teacher's tenure reform. And uh, let's do uh, something where we pass a law where we give parents more power in the schools of their choice. And the Democrats that normally would just, you know, be very much into this pro-education kind of idea to improve education, he said to me, we can do that. He says, I love the idea, but I cannot do that. Because if I go back to my district, I get beaten up, and labor will be all over me, and it would be possible. I would never get re-elected. So it's a great idea, but I can't do it. But what we can do is, because I don't want to embarrass you that you couldn't get your thing done, let's just do 50 schools, and we do a trial period of three years, and by that time we're out of office, and then we can go back to our old system. I said, no, no, I don't need a victory. I said, I need, we have 6,000 schools in California. I said, I need it for all 6,000 schools. They couldn't do it. When we negotiated about the environment, we wanted to do the cap and trade. The Republicans came and said, that's a great idea. All makes sense. We want to have a clean environment and all this stuff. But if I vote for that, he says, you know, my guys don't believe in this global warming stuff and all this stuff. He said, I go back to my district and I will get beaten up and I lose my election. So the reason is, is because when you are in a Republican district, you have to be so far to the right. And when you were in a Democratic district, you have to be so far to the left. That when they came to Sacramento, they were that far apart. And they could not pull the rubber band and not snap it. So they couldn't get together. So I felt that we got to move this closer together. And the way to get this done is through redistricting reform. And this is why, even though it has been on the ballot many times, I said, you're going to go back on the ballot. And we lost, like you've heard before. But then I said, I'll be back. <laughs> and we were back. And then the fifth time, it won. And so I'm so delighted to be able to stand here today and to say to you that we have now a commission that functions well, that has brought coherency to the system, that now, just a few days ago, Governor Jerry Brown has extended our cap and rate that I did as governor. Because ours runs out in 2020, but we made a commitment to reduce our greenhouse gases but 25% of the year Well, he has extended it, but he needed Republican votes. He got eight Republican votes. 
This is just a few years after the, the redistricting commission started working. I couldn't get any Republican votes because the system was fixed. They came in, this fantastic group of people, redrew the district lines, and now the governor, Brown, got eight Republican votes in order to get the bill passed and in outstanding It is a Democratic Assemblywoman that has introduced reform in teachers' tenure. Exactly what we talked about eight years ago, and where I couldn't get any Democrat. Now it's a Democratic Assembly member that it goes and introduces this bill, and it passed the race to the Assembly. Most likely will be successful in the Senate too. So think about those changes. And the Republicans are now uh, the Democrats, I should say, are now voting 90% with the Chamber of Commerce, and the Republicans always said in California talking about immigration reform. I mean, it's that wild, the things that are happening. <laughs> so I am a big believer that California, because we are kind of like a nation state, right? We have the sixth largest economy, and people really admire what we're doing out there, and the, the whole world knows us, and everything that we do gets into the news worldwide that we should not only think about ourselves and be selfish about this, but we should think about the rest of the nation. And this is why this idea is now finally catching on, because it's a very tricky subject, because it's very hard to articulate what it is really about, because the other side will come and confuse the issue very quickly. They're very good at that. But we are now going to take this nationwide. We're going to help to all the organizations that I've mentioned, including uh, Jolly, you don't know yet, but maybe you have to pay more money for it, for it and, uh, various different uh, elections and stuff like that. But I mean, we're going to go state by state. There's 37 states that have the initiative process, but we can go that route like in California. And then there's other states, maybe where we can get through the legislature and have their help. I don't have much hope there, but I mean, we can. I never give up hope. And the rest of it is through uh, the legal means. And we go to the Supreme Court. And uh, I have already started crowdfunding. So they'd be paid for all of those legal fees. And I said that every dollar that we raise through crowdfunding, I will match. And it doesn't matter to me if it costs a million dollars or two million, five million dollars. We're going to pay the bill, but we want to win in the Supreme Court so we get true reform nationwide.
that we face. And this afternoon is just an inspiration, certainly to me, and I hope everyone in this room to join together to create democratic institutions that work for the people. Finally, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. But before we adjourn, I want to take a moment to thank the Ash Center staff who helped plan today's event, particularly. And if you could stand up, Christina Marchand. Christina's over there. Listening to Ashcast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media at Harvard Ash. <laughs>